Do you have any questions about uh, what we have been discussing so far? Uh, the question is, uh, what is the connection between the karmic aftermath or different types of karmic aftermaths and uh, uh, the karmic results? This is a question that is uh, debated and uh, each of the Indian tenant systems has a, a different um, explanation. So some say that the uh, uh, karmic aftermath, which is uh, what uh, connects the uh, cause with the uh, result, is uh, an imputation on the mental continuum. I mean, that's in general. So uh, um, you have some schools, tenant systems, that say it's an imputation on mental consciousness. And Chittamatra says that it's an imputation on the um, foundation or storehouse consciousness, alia vijnana. And as I said, the non-revealing form would be uh, part of the uh, subtle um, energy. I mean, the subtle, um, yeah, subtle energy, let's call it. Yeah. But uh, according to the Prasangika school, uh, what we have is uh, uh, a uh, mental continuum. And on the mental continuum, as an imputation in every moment, including death uh, existence, is the uh, uh, self, me, as an imputation on it. So it bypasses the issue of what type of consciousness it is and says that uh, these, uh, this karmic aftermath, which are imputations, are imputations on the basis of the conventional self, which is a, an imputation on the basis of the five aggregates. So it sort of piggybacks on the conventional self. Uh, this question uh, is, uh, maybe it has three parts, but I will say all of them together. Uh, the first is about animals, whether they produce new karma, because especially uh, these carnival animals have to kill all their life, and quite clearly if, this all if all these actions create a new karma, it would be quite a terrible karma, negative karma of killing. Uh, or what they do is uh, merely the exhaustion uh, of their karma from the previous lives. Uh, and then the second part of the question is referring to the uh, small kids, the babies who cannot control themselves and nevertheless they can have such a quite strong emotion such as anger and so on. So if they cannot control themselves just because they're babies, does it mean that they accumulate the same karma of the same intensity as adults? And the third uh, part of the question is basically the same about people with uh, psychic disorders. If people cannot control themselves because of the problem with their psycho, is it, do they also, does, uh, do their actions have the same karmic uh, weight and results as with the healthy people? The various types of uh, karmic aftermath, the potential and the tendency specifically, uh, will vary in strength over time. So uh, the more that one repeats the action, 
without applying opponent forces, then of course the stronger the uh, karmic results are going to be. If one applies uh, opponent forces like uh, regret and uh, um, vowing not to, you know, to repeat the action, which gets rid of the non-revealing form and so on, then obviously the potential gets weaker. Uh, there is a list of actually 13 different uh, variables that uh, are going to affect the uh, strength of the ripening of the karma. So not only uh, how much we repeat it, but uh, how quickly, you know, the frequency of repeating it. But uh, one of the uh, more relevant factors uh, from what uh, your question is uh, pinpointing is the strength of the disturbing emotion or other motivation that uh, brings about the repetition of the action. And remember what it is, uh, um, what we're talking about is what ripens from the karma. So, you know, feeling like uh, repeating the action, you know, liking to, feel, to repeat the action and intending to repeat the action, that mental factor will get stronger and stronger, you know, because that's what's ripening. So, if uh, um, we are reborn with an animal body or as a, uh, a baby, then the uh, mental factor of discriminating awareness, which would uh, be able to discriminate, is this in, you know, wish and intention to act in this way? Is it beneficial or is it harmful? And the ability to decide if it's harmful, I'm not going to carry it out. As a baby or an animal, it's very, very weak. For an animal, <coughs> it, uh, for most animals, they just kill, carnivorous animals, they just kill out of instinct. They're not deciding, should I kill or not? So an animal like a, uh, uh, a vulture, or not a vulture, but uh, an eagle or a lion or something like that, will uh, only kill when it's hungry. Whereas something like a cat will torture a mouse even if it's not hungry. So again, uh, the hardware of the type of body and brain is going to uh, affect what uh, the animal does. But uh, when a, uh, a carnivorous animal hunts and uh, kills and eats another animal, then one could really question uh, how much anger is the lion angry with that animal or not? And uh, if, uh, um, I mean, in actually killing it, there has to be some sort of aggression that's there. But uh, the uh, causal motivation would not be anger, it would be hunger. So the, uh, it's still a destructive action because there's ignorance there and it's part of samsara and it will perpetuate samsara but uh, it is uh, weaker than somebody who kills, murders out of anger and has the discriminating awareness to be able to not do that, to know that not to do that. Of the uh, disturbing emotions, anger is the strongest, then uh, attachment and desire, and the uh, less strong is naivety or ignorance. We can, uh, you know, one of these three poisonous attitudes is usually there. So a baby 
you know, when it says, I hate you and hits, you know, the, mo the mother or the father, uh, there's some anger, but it's not, you know, uh, deeply rooted anger, you know, like somebody, that, uh, like an adult would have. But uh, what is very strong there is the naivety. It doesn't know any better. It doesn't know the difference between what we would say in the West, right and wrong. So there's strong naivety there. Uh, but it will be less heavy as, as there would be a strong anger. Because it would be less heavy if there would, than uh, an adult with strong anger and the ability to discriminate. But still, it's destructive. Another uh, factor that's involved here is the amount of suffering that you cause to the other person. So when a two-year-old, when the mother says, you know, it's time for bed, and the two-year-old says, you know, I don't want to go to bed, I hate you, uh, <laughs> that uh, the mother doesn't uh, really feel, you know, get hurt that the baby hates her. It's different than an adult saying to you, your partner saying, I hate you. But uh, an animal rebirth is uh, pretty terrible if we're a carnivorous animal because uh, as the animal, you do continue to build up stronger and stronger uh, uh, negative potential by continuing to kill. Less, yeah. though, than a mass murderer as a human. And that uh, karmic potential and tendency to repeat killing, very, very difficult as an animal for that to exhaust because uh, the animal continues to uh, kill, and so it reinforces the strength of that uh, potential and tendency. Uh, the question about these two types of uh, positive force that we discussed yesterday, because one we have, uh, one we accumulate or build up when we still have bodhicitta with uh, efforts, labored bodhicitta, uh, but it's supposed to be facsimile, so it's not the real one. Uh, but then, as soon as we have bodhicitta without efforts, then uh, it becomes a pure enlightened, enlightenment building uh, positive force or potential. Um, so the question is whether the first one so, somehow helps us to, to come to the second one uh, and brings us to the, so, yeah. Uh, definitely, the facsimile bodhicitta builds up a positive force obviously, and uh, since we are dedicating it to enlightenment, then it's going to uh, contribute to being able to develop the uh, uh, unlabored bodhicitta. Hmm. By the way, I uh, just I want to add something that uh, maybe will uh, clarify some misunderstanding that uh, some people might have uh, regarding uh, what we need in order to attain the first of the five pathway minds, the building up pathway. Pathway is a state of mind that uh, uh, each of these five is a certain level of mind, level of insight, a level of development of the mind. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about steps on a staircase. So to build up a, I mean, to attain a building up bodhisattva mind, as a bodhisattva, as we have uh, already mentioned, we need this unlabored bodhicitta, that you're able to uh, develop it or generate it without having to rely on a line of reasoning, the seven-part cause and effect or equalizing and exchanging of self with others. You've gone through that enough and built up enough positive force 
so that it comes automatically. So all the praise of the benefits of bodhicitta that we find like in the first chapter of Shantideva's engaging in bodhisattva behavior, bodhicharya vatara, are referring to unlabored bodhicitta. As soon as we develop that, then, you know, fantastic. Doesn't say that it's no good to develop a facsimile, but the real benefits come from the unlabored one. But, uh, and we see need a certain buildup of positive force to attain that uh, level of mind. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, Buddhism, we always talk about method and wisdom. So we also need uh, a, a buildup of uh, uh, discriminating awareness, the deep awareness. We need to understand it. And it's going to be conceptual because that's all that we're able to uh, um, have. In other words, we have some understanding through a category of something and words. And what is the topic that we have to have the understanding of? It's the Four Noble Truths and the 16 aspects of the Four Noble Truths and the voidness of the person who experiences the Four Noble Truths. And in Mahayana, the voidness of the Four Noble Truths themselves and of the mind that, is, you know, that, that, it's, that experiences it. Right? It's very important, the voidness of the person who is experiencing suffering the person who has the ignorance and anger and so on, the person that will uh, uh, have no more of these, uh, you know, true stopping of these troublemakers, and the person who has that understanding that will bring it about. We have to understand the voidness of me doing all of this, experiencing all of this. So our topic, you know, who's to blame for karma? The me who experiences the results of karma, that's first noble truth, the one who experiences suffering. The me who experiences the causes of you know, karma, the karmic actions, that's the me that experiences the second noble truth, causes of suffering. So this is the larger context of what we're, uh, that what we're discussing fits into. And it's not necessary to have achieved shamatha in order to achieve a building's pathway of mind, not at all. We may have achieved it beforehand on the breath or on, you know, whatever. But uh, uh, what we are, but you don't have to have had that. What you're building up in that building up pathway of mind is shamatha and then shamatha plus vipassana focused on what I just said, the Four Noble Truths, the voidness of the person experiencing it and the voidness of the Four Noble Truths and the mind experiencing it. Uh, so that you build up, even if you have shamatha on the breath before, but even if you don't have shamatha on the breath before, that doesn't disqualify you from attaining a, a building up pathway of mind. So get one, your priorities straight here in terms of, you know, what you really need is that conceptual understanding of Four Noble Truths and the voidnesses that are involved. And that doesn't have to be with shamatha, you know, perfect concentration to attain that building a pathway of mind that you work on after that. Okay. Another point that I wanted to bring up is uh, I'll ask the question that, it, uh, that the answer is part of, like a TV show. 
uh, a quiz show. The question is, how does uh, uh, the, how do these non-revealing forms fit in with uh, Tantra, Nutri Yoga Tantra? And this becomes very interesting. Uh, in uh, a Nutri Yoga Tantra, well, Tantra in general, we visualize ourselves in the form of a Buddha figure, you know, Chenrezig or Tara or Kalachakra or, you know, Yamantika, Ruka, I mean, there's, there's hundreds of them. And uh, we uh, visualize sending out these forms to benefit others and also during our daily lives as we are acting, uh, we are trying to always visualize ourselves in this form as we act and speak. So there's obviously a non-revealing form that uh, goes together with that, uh, uh, that continues afterwards, but uh, more specifically, when we reach a very advanced stage in the Nutri Yoga Tantra, we actually have generated our subtle energy, subtlest energy, I should say, in that form of the Buddha figure. So then the non-revealing form this dynamic energy is the dynamic energy of a grosser level of energy that is involved with actually, you know, the revealing action. So already we have a shaping of the energy, the shape of the Buddha figure, what will become the body of a Buddha. That's why, you know, I have this, uh, this uh, theory that, uh, that non-revealing form, as long as it's not lost, and it is generated from actions in which you first imagine and then you actually have your energy in the form of this deity, that that will be the obtaining cause from which you obtain the Rupakaya, form of the Buddha, as one of these figures. Because you don't want to attain the Buddha in the form of our limited hardware of this body. So this is my current theory based on my own analytical meditation. I haven't seen that in text, but uh, it uh, gives you an idea of uh, what you really want to analyze when we talk about analytical meditation. Try to put various pieces of the puzzle of the Dharma together. So why are you visualizing? How does it work that you're visualizing yourself as a uh, you know, one of the, you know, is, that's Tara or Avalokiteshvara, and then you become Buddha in that form. How does the causality work? And these non-revealing forms seem to uh, uh, be a good candidate for how it works as one of the causes. There are many, many causes that contribute, as we were saying, that one cause doesn't just produce one result. You know, you wonder, his Holiness the Dalai Lama says that uh, uh, every day the majority of the meditation he does is analytical meditation. So then you start to wonder, what in the world? You know, somebody at that level has to do analytical meditation every day. So at least my theory from my experience is that what you're doing is constantly trying to, you know, if you have a vast you know, uh, store of hearing, of listening to teachings, that what you're trying to do is to put more and more of the pieces together in more and more ways. That's the ongoing process of the analytical meditation. 
at least one aspect of the analytical meditation, then familiarizing yourself with it repeatedly. And then whatever level of concentration that we have, we use that in the analytical uh, meditation. What affects our ability to concentrate is primarily interest. If you're really interested in something, you can concentrate. Look at a child with attention deficit disorder, how well they're able to concentrate on a video game because they're interested in it. So if we're really interested in the Dharma because we see the benefits, you'll be able to concentrate at least to some level to get some type of insight. It doesn't have to be perfect in order to get insight. Concentration doesn't have to be perfect in order to get insight and to make gradual changes in our behavior and understanding. So getting perfect concentration, wonderful. Can't uh, say anything wrong with that or any fault with that. But what really makes change is understanding. Okay, um, one last question. Uh, the question is, uh, what kind of actions we have to avoid if we don't want to lose our path of dharma and uh, to keep our interest in uh, study and practice? What do we need to avoid? What would you recommend to avoid? Uh, what, uh, well, put it the other way around. What do we need to develop? And what we need to develop is uh, decisiveness that the dharma is, the teachings are correct and that they are of benefit and that I will be able to actually uh, understand them and apply them. So what we want to avoid is thinking that the teachings are stupid and we don't believe in them. We don't believe they're correct. And we think that they are of no benefit whatsoever. And even if they are of benefit, I can't possibly understand it or attain anything. Uh, so I will generalize the question and uh, the question is uh, if we are in a situation in this life that, that we cannot conceive a child, does it mean that we don't have any karmic debts connected with that? And it means that we will not be able to do that. We don't need to do that. We don't have to do that from the karmic point of view because we don't have the debt and uh, we can just relax and let go. Well, I would uh, translate first of the wall, first of all, the word debt in ter uh, to potential. We don't have the potential. I wouldn't uh, uh, say that necessarily it's a negative potential to have uh, a child. It could also be a positive potential to have a child. Let's say to have a child that will benefit. You know, your child could turn out to be Hitler or your child could turn out to be Mahatma Gandhi. And, uh, when we say that uh, uh, there's no potential to be able to conceive of a child in this uh, lifetime, that doesn't mean that we don't have a potential to give birth to a child in some future lifetime. I mean, there's no end to time. If a karmic potential or tendency that will ripen in the form of a rebirth body has already ripened and we've taken that body Let's say we are born blind. There's nothing that can be done to uh, uh, make us not blind in that body. It's already ripened. 
if we have a potential that is not, so if you have the, if your body has been born in which you are infertile, then, you know, there's nothing that uh, can be done. If the karmic potential is not ripened yet, then you can apply various other forces to uh, uh, create the circumstances in which it could ripen. But if it's already ripened, it's finished. Uh, the question is whether the uh, fruits of our practice, the results of our practice, uh, go, go to fulfilling of our no, uh, usual samsaric uh, wishes, desires. Well, yes. Uh, when you talk about uh, positive potential that's not dedicated to liberation or enlightenment, it will dedicate in the pleasurable, you know, in happiness, worldly happiness, and various, you know, things going well from, on a worldly point of view in, uh, in our lifetimes. And uh, happiness is a much more conducive state of mind for being able to make further practice, progress on the, on the path than being miserable, being unhappy. You need to have a certain amount of suffering and not too much happiness, but come on, a precious human rebirth is much better for practicing the Dharma than the rebirth as a fly. In the Lam Rim, the greatest stages of the path, what does somebody with an initial you know, level of uh, uh, motivation do? They try to avoid destructive you know, karma, just, you know, building up this negative potential and try to build up positive potential it's to continue having precious human rebirths. So you can go further on the path. That's the initial scope. We need that. And that's not something that you uh, stop doing as a basis because you're going to need that precious human rebirth all the way up to liberation and enlightenment. So we can divide each of the stages of Lamrim motivation into three stages. So we can want to get a precious human rebirth in order to enjoy the pleasures of samsara. We could want a precious human rebirth in order to have a basis for attaining liberation, or we could have a wish for a precious human rebirth in order to have a basis for attaining enlightenment. So like that, each of the scopes is divided into three. That comes from a, a very obscure uh, Lamrim uh, text, which was ascribed to uh, Atisha, but not something that is well known among the Tibetans. So. Let us uh, then take our break and then we'll continue with the rest of the material.